From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. The 2021 MacArthur Fellows were recently announced, and the list of recipients of the so-called Genius Grant include Desmond Mead, president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. So today we're revisiting a conversation we had with Mr. Mead in March of this year. In 2018, almost 65% of Florida voters cast ballots in support of Amendment 4 to the state constitution, the ballot initiative to restore voting rights to citizens who'd been convicted of certain felonies after they had completed their sentences. Its successful passage restored voting rights to more than 1.4 million Floridians. At least that's what its authors intended. Despite strong bipartisan support, as soon as Amendment 4 passed, the Republican legislature limited its scope to only include people who owed no money to the state. After a series of court challenges on September 11, 2020, the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit ruled that the requirement for former felons to pay fines did not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and so former felons could not vote until they paid all fines and fees. That means about 774,000 people with outstanding legal financial obligations still cannot register to vote in Florida. But it does mean more than half a million people People with prior felony convictions can now register to vote in Florida, and many have. This is a drastic shift in how Florida restores voting rights to former felons. Prior to its passage, they were almost certain to remain disenfranchised for the rest of their lives. It represents the largest expansion of voting rights in the U.S. in half a century. Our guest today was the driving force behind the passage of Amendment 4. Desmond Mead is president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy, and author of the new book, Let My People Vote, My Battle to Restore the Civil Rights of Returning Citizens, which recounts his struggles with addiction and homelessness before turning his life toward public service and the Amendment 4 campaign. Mr. Mead, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. This conversation is pre-recorded, but you can engage with us and your fellow listeners about this or any of our shows. Just find us on Facebook. We're at the WGCU Public Media Facebook page. We're on Twitter. We're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So how much of what's in this book, stuff that you hadn't really spoken about publicly to any great degree before you wrote it down and then released it to the world? Wow. Uh, you know, when I when I think uh, about that question, now I, I, I can say about, I would say a good 40% I have really discussed publicly, especially some of those like real personal stories about struggles that I've gone through and even my journey after recovering from drug abuse. Was it a, a difficult decision to be as open as you were? You know, it wasn't. And, and part of that is, you know, what I learned through uh, recovery is that the more you talk about something, the less it has a hold over you, you know? And so I've always made it a point to be as open as I can be. I want to be as transparent and let folks know, you know, listen, these are the weak points of Desmond. These are the mistakes that he made, you know? And then of course, uh, looking at that movie, Eight Mile, that starred Eminem and Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, I, I'll never forget the scene where he was in a rap contest and uh, he lost the first time. But the second time around, what he did was that he said all the bad things about him. So his opponent didn't have anything else, to, any material to use against him, you know, so. Uh, where did the title of the book come from? Well, the title of the book came from, you know, um, in the effort to uh, uh, combat felon disenfranchisement and restore voting rights, one of the main themes that we use was let my people vote. 
you know, ironically, it actually originated in Alabama by another formerly incarcerated individual that was engaged in trying to restore voting rights there. Uh, his name was uh, Pastor Kenneth Glasgow. And uh, that was just a phrase that was really uh, catchy. And we used that during our campaign uh, to great success. Um, let's start with your origin a little bit before we get to the campaign for Amendment 4. So you were born in St. Croix, moved to Miami when you were five. What kind of kid were you, uh, you know, growing up when you were young? And I, I would like to say I was a great kid <laughs> uh, growing up. You know, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, you know, I think I had a loving family. I was raised in a Christian family uh, where my dad was a preacher. But, you know, one of my biggest experiences, and I talk about it in the book, was a friendship with a little girl named Amy who happened to be white. But, you know, at that age, we did not even see uh, skin color, you know. We were kindred spirits who, for some reason or another, just really cared for each other. And when the time came for Amy to leave the island with her parents, that was a, a tough situation. You know, uh, we didn't want to be separated. And that kind of stuck with you through your life in a way, in terms of being able to, you know, uh, see people for who they are, not, you know, what they look like. You know, that is so right. And in addition to that, it is about how much we can learn from kids, right? Because, you know, the racism and, and the prejudice are things that are not, I don't believe they're inherent, right? They're things that are, are taught. You know, and, and, and as kids, you see how they can get along with each other and, and in a lot of cases resolve their dispute. It's when we become adults that we get caught in, in these ways that are, are, are so divisive. And so that story also reflects that, you know, there's still a lot that we can learn from children. So how old were you when you started getting into trouble and what kind of trouble was it? I would say about when I was 17, you know, while in high school, started experimenting with drugs. I was still I was a great student in school. You know, I, I got good grades. I was in the, all of the right classes, whether it was honor or, or a college placement classes. And so I was doing well as it relates to schoolwork. But there was a side of me that wanted to be adventurous. Uh, there was a side of me that wanted to be cool, you know, because, you know, uh, being smart in school back then was, wasn't was like the end thing, you know, you know, because a lot of folks, they made fun of the smart people, you know, calling them nerds or whatever. But the football players or the jocks, you know, or the guys that dressed nice uh, were the ones who got all the attention. And so wanting to dip into those uh, um, I would say characteristics or trying to be like those individuals uh, really led me to like using drugs and then starting to get in trouble. Um, what was the point where you realized that you were really in trouble with drugs and, and alcohol? Well, it was when I was uh, homeless in the late 90s. You know, after my mother passed away, uh, I really dove into drugs like heavily, uh, Cause that was a that was a, a moment in my life that I really could not emotionally handle, and you know my use of drugs at that time led me to be homeless very quickly, and it was when I was uh, living on the streets like an animal that you know it, it really started to sink in that I was not in a good place, 
And this was not a place that was meant for for human beings or for someone like me. No. Um, Did you try rehab before you wound up being arrested, or did that only come after? Oh, that's all. (laughs) Yeah, so I, you know, I got arrested a few times, and and I tried rehab a couple of times as well. You know, the first time I went to drug treatment, you know, it, it wasn't a complete success because uh, not too long after completing it, I, I, I suffered a relapse or I started using drugs again. Uh, and so, you know, and going back to jail and, and getting arrested and, you know, it was, it was a journey. It was, um, it was a vicious cycle that, you know, at some point I, I figured that I could never get out of that cycle. And that's when, you know, I you know was standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on a train to come so I can jump in front of it. I didn't see any any light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't think that, you know, I was going to ever break that vicious cycle of, of, of drug addiction. And I didn't see any other choice but to end my life. So what was the turning point for you then? Those tracks, man. Those tracks. You know, uh, that was the start of a new beginning when, you know, fortunately the train... Uh, didn't come, and, and it's, it was quite unusual because the train tracks where I stood uh, was a busy thoroughfare for trains, you know, because there was a lot of deliveries in that area, whether it was fresh produce, uh, whether it was garments, or whether uh, they had to either pick up or drop off something from the Port of Miami, which is one of the busiest ports in the country. Uh, but for some reason, that day while I was uh, standing in front of those tracks, the train never came. And, and so uh, the moment I crossed those tracks, you know, uh, that was that, you know, the first steps towards a new life. And of course, you know, um, and I talk about it in the book as well, about the um, uh, Rosa Parks dying uh, not too long after that and just seeing the outpouring of love, you know, um, for Rosa Parks really caused me to start planning my own funeral. And in the planning of my funeral, uh, that's when I discovered that I can take the the bad things. I can take the things that had had caused me to uh, develop a low self-esteem and and want to end my life. I could take those very same things and use it for something positive. Was that before you wound up going to prison when you first started learning about law, or was that after? That was after. <laughs> that was after. Now, you know, let me tell you, when I was a little kid, I used to love watching Perry Mason. Um, and so as a kid growing up, uh, I, you know, I used to dream about either becoming a pilot or an attorney. And so there, were, there was always a love of the law that was inside of me. Uh, but those dreams died with, with, with my drug addiction. And it wasn't until after I was sentenced. To 15 years in prison in, I believe, two, two, 2001, uh, that I was able to rekindle that passion for law. So when you had that moment um, at, the, at the railroad tracks, what was your first step then toward, you know, who you are today? You know, asking myself, uh, asking myself a very pivotal question, you know. When I crossed those tracks, I stopped for a moment, and I asked myself, you know, if I were to have died that day, how many people would have come to my funeral? You know, and the immediate answer was nobody would have came because, you know, I didn't have any idea I was homeless. 
uh, I would have been buried in a pauper's grave if, if they was if they couldn't identify me. And I you know I didn't like that 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 empty feeling, you know that that I would die and no one would you know be there when I'm buried. And so I kind of changed some of the facts around and said, okay, Desmond, you're you're killed by the train and and the Miami Herald have your picture on the front page, top of the fold with bold headlines, Desmond killed by train, you know, and with that, how many people would come to your funeral? And I thought long and hard and I only came up with about four people and out of the four people, maybe two would have shed a tear. And even that was, was gut wrenching. And it felt like, you know, like a Mike Tyson blow to the gut really. And it really made me question uh, the significance of my time on this planet, you know, knowing that, you know, I've met so many friends and been in so many relationships and, and lived so many places, you know, to only have four people care if I died and maybe two really be sad enough to shed a tear, uh, was very deflating. And it made me question my existence and, you know, that served as a, 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 a foundation, or I should say a springboard uh, for me to wanting to plan my funeral and, you know, actually do something in life that made a difference, you know, um, knowing that my time on earth was not going to be wasted. So is that when you, or is that about when you decided to go to college? Yeah, well, after, it was after I completed um, uh, drug treatment and I was living in a homeless shelter. And, you know, thinking about that vicious cycle of drug abuse, you know, how you could you could stop using drugs by going to drug treatment or whatever mechanism. But at some point, something would happen that would trigger a, a relapse or, or cause you to pick up the drug or maybe a drink or whatever. And the next thing you know, you're right back where you started from or even in a worse place. And so I wanted to to do something to break that cycle because I knew that if I were to use drugs again and I ended up in front of another set of railroad tracks, this time I probably wouldn't be as lucky. And so I, the only thing I could come up with was for me to go to school because, you know, I think that that would have been something that would have raised my self-esteem. And so at school, um, you know, and I listened to your book, by the way, so it's nice to be able to talk to you because I've heard you narrating it uh, for the past couple of days. But so it was at school where you decided that community service was something that you were going to be passionate about and that kind of turned on a light switch for you? Well, it was right before I did that. I actually, it, it happened in uh, while I was in treatment, you know, um, it was, we had this uh, group therapy session and afterwards this young man approached me telling me how there was something that I said during the group therapy session that caused him to have a different or much better outlook in life. And I remember when he told me that, uh, I felt something inside of me that I had never felt before. I tell folks today, it's a joy that I never knew existed. And it was a joy that I was chasing all my life and didn't even know I was chasing it. Uh, and, and, and what it boils down to basically was that I found what my purpose in life was, and it was to give back, you know? And, and so I knew uh, at that moment 
that that was such a good feeling, right? And it didn't take much because, uh, and I did. It didn't require me to have special titles. It didn't require me to have a social, uh, a special social economic status because it was no matter what position I was in, there was always someone else that was worse off than me. So which meant that there was always an opportunity for me to give back to me, for me to use my own personal experience to help others uh, with their experience so they wouldn't have to uh, go to the railroad tracks like I did, you know? And so it was during treatment that I, I realized uh, I was able to find my purpose and realize that, that what I need to dedicate my life to is giving back to folks. Right. And, and I think that that's the basis of community services. Uh, what can we engage in that would allow us to pour back in to our community and do something uh, uh, beneficial to our community, improve other people's lives? If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Desmond Mead. He's president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. It's the organization that pushed for Amendment 4 back in 2018. He's also chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy and author of the book, Let My People Vote, My Battle to Restore the Civil Rights of Returning Citizens. To engage with us and your fellow listeners about our conversation, find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media, and on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So when did you first learn about the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition? Michael, it was uh, one of the things that I did when um, I got through uh, with drug treatment was I, I wanted to, you know, get engaged uh, in some type of activity that would allow me to engage in community service. And I joined an organization that I thought was perfect for me. Uh, it was named Homeless Formerly Homeless Form. And it was an advocacy organization uh, that advocated for safe and affordable housing and for ending homelessness. And the main uh, people in this organization were people who are either currently homeless or at one point or another had experienced homelessness. And so I, you know, I figured that this was the perfect organization for me to join. And it just so happened that they were a coalition member of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. And I was invited to uh, a convening for the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition a year after I was in front of those railroad tracks. So in August of, of 2005, I was standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on the train to come. And in August of 2006, I was attending my first ever convening at Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. And it was there I was introduced, and, and as they say, the rest is history. You know, so you've been president since 2010, right? Yes. Yes, I have. Um, you know, in those early days for you, could you have imagined um, where we've wound up today with the successful passage of Amendment 4? Not in a million years. You know, I used to tell folks that if, you know, when I was there standing in front of those railroad tracks, if somebody would have told me, hey, Desmond, don't jump in front of that train because in four years you're going to graduate with a degree and, and you're going to sit on boards with mayors and commissioners and, and be on task force with attorney generals and, and meet the president of the United States or, you know, and then in a few more years, you're going to graduate law school and lead this organization and, 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 
a major ballot initiative and all of this. If somebody would have told me that when I was standing in front of those tracks, you know what I would have asked them? Hmm. Where did they get that good dope they're smoking? Hmm. <laughs> because there was no way that you could have convinced me at that time that I would, in, in a matter of a few years, be transformed from this homeless crack addict who had nothing going for him with a criminal record. Uh, the only thing he owned with a clothes on it, with a uh, clothes on his back would elevate to that level. There is no way you could have convinced me of that at the time, you know, but today I know that, you know, and, and I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book to let folks know that no matter where you are, no matter the darkness that you may uh, uh, be in right now or the obstacles that may be in front of you, that nothing is really impossible, you know, that you can overcome seemingly insurmountable odds and become a, like a, a great contributor to your community, to this country, to the state. I mean, come on, in 2019, I was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Now, that's huge. But it, it, it really speaks to the fact that any one of us, no matter what position we're in, have an opportunity to do great things. And I do believe it starts with service. Can you explain why you and uh, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition use the term returning citizens instead of former felons or other you know, labels like that? Yes. You know, I'm, uh, I believe it was in 2010, 2011, we were planning um, some statewide rallies in several cities throughout the state of Florida. And I remember coming across uh, some research that was done by Florida State University, and they talked about labeling. And in that research, uh, what they concluded was that when you call someone an ex-felon or ex-con, that you actually increase the likelihood of them uh, recidivating or committing a new offense, right? And it kind of reminded me of the adage that we've heard, that if you continuously call a child stupid, they're going to grow up thinking that they're what? Like, they're stupid. And so, you know, I think it's everybody's interest that uh, if someone commits a crime, they're caught, they're punished, they serve their time, it's in everyone's interest that they don't commit any more crimes, right? And so it benefits everyone when we could do things to reduce the recidivism rate among people who've been incarcerated. And one of the things that we can do starts with how are we uh, labeling people or how are we referring to who they are? You know, and if we're going to tell somebody that they're always a criminal and, you know, we're going to keep calling them criminal, 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 then we can't get upset if they revert to engaging in criminal activity. And so we try to create something positive, uh, something that would have some positive vibes and, and, where we landed was uh, talking about someone being a returning citizen. So Amendment 4 passed by, it was like 65% of the vote, um, and then the Republican legislature and the governor stepped in and passed the legislation. Um, was that a surprise to you? Well, yes and no. You know, I, I think it was, uh, it was not, I should say, a surprise knowing that, you know, our legislature have a history of tinkering or meddling with ballot initiatives after it's been passed. You know, we've seen it 
in fair districts. We've seen it with medical marijuana. We've seen it with, uh, I think, the classroom size initiative. And now here we are in, in 2021, and we're seeing it with the minimum wage uh, initiative that was passed by uh, Florida voters. And so there's a, just a history of legislators not relying on the will or, or I should say, heeding the will of the people and figuring that they know better and they could, you know, produce something that's uh, 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 better than what the citizens asked for. But they never they never engage in that prior to the ballot initiative. But all of a sudden now they have the wisdom to make it right. And so uh, that part it was definitely not surprising. Uh, what was um, what to me was the first of all, when Amendment 4 passed, you know, we accomplished something that was huge. And I, and I do believe one of the main reasons that, that this was a big deal was the fact of how we won it. We didn't win Amendment 4 by scaring people. We didn't win Amendment 4 by stroking up the hate or, or fear. Uh, you know, we won with love, that we were able to bring together people from all walks of life and all political persuasions to come together and vote yes on Amendment 4, you know, and it was just surprising how, you know, our elected officials did not respect that part of it, right? Did not respect the fact that we had folks that was Democrat, Republicans, independents that said that, yes, we need to give people second chances. And the minute we passed it, uh, this issue became hyper-partisan, and that was sad. Uh, we've only got about a minute left, but you end your book with, um, I still believe that love will win the day. Uh, you, I presume you still feel that now since you didn't write it that long ago? <laughs> yes, I do. I, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to to travel the state of Florida. There was a time when I was uh, putting at least 50,000 miles a year on my car, just driving throughout the state in the various counties and talking to so many people from various backgrounds. And the one thing that I realized is that there is much more that binds us together as human beings than there are that separates us. And I do know that deep down inside, folks, they want to be loved. They want to love, you know, and, and they care deeply uh, for their family and their friends and, 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 and their, 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 their community. And people just want what's best uh, uh, for the community. It is when you start uh, traveling in the upper echelons and you start, you, you start getting more political and more uh, uh, divisive along, uh, even along race with, with the biases that we uh, uh, have today that, there's the division and the separation. I am encouraged because I see the good in in people. I see the good in this in this state uh, in moments of, of of trauma. You know, when you when you see in the aftermath of a hurricane, you see people coming together, not caring about uh, how a person voted or the color of their skin. Right. But they just care about a human being. And, and, and we see this all the time. You know, if your house is on fire and a fireman comes to put out your house, 
you're not going to stop that fireman that says, did you vote for Donald Trump or did you vote for Joe Biden? You don't care about none of that. What you care about is that there's someone coming to help you in a moment of need, right? And you appreciate that. And I, so I do believe that love can, in fact, win the day. We just have to elevate ourselves above the partisan politics. We have to elevate ourselves above the implicit racial biases and come together along the lines of humanity. Because when we do that, we can, well, we can actually do that in a very pure place. And when that happens, oh my God, it's a beautiful thing to see. We see it in the response to the COVID pandemic. Some of the most beautiful moments are when regular everyday people come together in support of their neighbor. It's the ugly part is when, you know, you see politicians bickering back and forth on both sides. So that's the ugly part of the pandemic. The beautiful part is when people come together. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. I want to thank my guest, Desmond Mead, as president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy, a graduate of Florida International University College of Law, and author of the new book, Let My People Vote, My Battle to Restore the Civil Rights of Returning Citizens, which came out back in October. Mr. Mead, thank you so much for your time. Michael, thank you so much for having me. This interview with Mr. Mead originally aired on March 2nd of this year, shortly after his book was released. We've re-aired it today because Desmond was just named one of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Grant recipients for his work with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and its successful efforts to pass the 2018 Amendment 4 ballot initiative. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Truly, our director is Richard Chinqui, and our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. 